All right, so we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus. This is after the burning bush. This is Moses returning back to Egypt, his old stomping ground, and he's visiting the Jewish elders. And of course, he was accustomed earlier in his life to living at the palace, not with the slaves. So that must have been a weird thing for him to come back to town. And rather than actually going back to his old room, you know, with his uh, baseball trophies on the wall and all that other kind of stuff, instead of going back to actually his people, you know, the people that he grew up with and so on, instead now he's with his real people, uh, with the Jews. And so he's hanging out now with, uh, with the slaves. And so that must have just been a little bit, little bit strange. But the response of the Jewish leaders was beautiful, and we saw this last week. This is the very last two verses of chapter 4. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshipped. What a beautiful thing there. So they hear through Moses, through Aaron, Uh, with Moses kind of standing in the background there, that uh, here's what's going to happen. God has seen their affliction, God loves them, and God's going to do something about it. So they had a worship service. They had a worship service sitting there knowing that God loved them and was going to set them free. Well, let's see how things go. Chapter 5, verse 1. And you remember, Moses had been very nervous about his ability to do any of this. Uh, He literally asked God to send somebody else, but here he goes. He gets up the nerve to do what God called him to do. Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. All right, so this is exactly what it was that... uh... Oh, good. Thank you. That was easy. It's quiet. That's good. Yeah. Sometimes we do that with our kids. You're not fixed. Let's just make sure you're quiet. I don't even know what. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So. So Moses goes and he does exactly what God told him to do. And it's interesting to think, what was Moses expecting to happen at that moment? What did he think was going to happen? Because it wasn't what happened. Here's what actually happened in verse 2 of Exodus chapter 5. Pharaoh said, who's Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, he's more right than he knows there. The key problem here is, I do not know Yahweh. (laughs) I do not know the Lord, and that's true. He had certainly heard of the king of the Jews. These are a massive people group that lives within uh, his borders, and he's depending on them to build all kinds of his stuff. And so he certainly knows about the God of these Jewish people. What he means when he says, I don't know Yahweh, what he means is that he does not respect this so-called God. Now, God has promised miracles all the way through this section, and he keeps telling Pharaoh through Moses, I'm going to do these miracles so that you know the Lord, so that you will know, so that you may know 
For example, with the, pra- with the plague of frogs that happens here in a couple of chapters, Exodus chapter 8, Moses said to Pharaoh, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So the problem here is you've got a foreign king who does not respect God, and God wants to do certain things in Pharaoh's life so that Pharaoh will know that God is God. But that word know is interesting, I think. It's an interesting contrast with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was such a cool character in Scripture. He's just interesting to me. Uh, He was the Babylonian king, so this would be generations later, generations after Moses. And we learn about him in in, uh, Daniel, mostly Daniel chapter 4. There's uh, this incredible story of things that God does in Nebuchadnezzar's life so that Nebuchadnezzar would know the Lord. And it's a really cool story. Uh, You can read it in your own time, but there's a surprise ending in this particular story, and that's that Nebuchadnezzar actually humbles himself. So he goes through all of this stuff that God creates in his life. God moves his life and all of this kind of thing. And the surprise ending here is that this foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar, actually turns and, and repents and puts his life underneath Yahweh. In fact, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says before he even tells the story in Daniel chapter 4. He says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel apparently thought that was so cool that he actually put it in his book, the book of Daniel. And actually, the end of that whole thing at the end of Daniel chapter 4 is really neat, too. He, He whips off another really beautiful praise to the Lord. So God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know him. As in, so when we're talking about know here, we mean humble yourself under God, respect God, and live under God. But this is not the kind of know that God is after with Pharaoh. God wants Pharaoh to know him almost in a different sense. God wants Pharaoh to know him, but as in a kind of like realize your realize the truth in the midst of your doom sort of sense. Like as we're leaving town, you will know that you were wrong. It's a different kind of knowing. Exodus chapter nine. I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know. That there was none like me in all the earth, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God is saying there, I could have solved this much more easily. Like the book of Exodus could have been a lot shorter. I could have killed you all with a with a plague could have given you all cancer or some kind of weird disease or whatever you would have died and all my people would have been like well i guess we might as well go now and that could have been the exodus but no god wants to do something way cooler than that so he raises up pharaoh to a position of incredible power he says for this purpose i have raised you up to show you my power so that so this is the reason pharaoh exists this is the purpose of pharaoh's existence so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. As we're doing this morning, God wants us to retell this story over and over and over because of how awesome he is and what he did in Pharaoh's life. (laughs) 
And this shows God's absolute sovereignty over all creation. It shows that sin and rebellion really are foul, really are serious. People sometimes suggest that the God of the Bible is petty and that it's wrong for him to kill so many people all the way through Scripture. You think about Noah, you think about the uh, cities devoted to destruction under Joshua, which included children and, and all of this other kind of stuff. And we think, well, God must not, this, the God of the Bible must not be good because he, he kills so many people in the Bible. Except what the Bible is communicating is that sin and rebellion really are foul. There's a gravity to sin and rebellion and that God gets glory not only in salvation but also in judgment. And he is right and he is good to punish those who have sinned. So sometimes people recoil against that, but we do not have the right to live however we want. And Pharaoh learned this the hard way. Many of us have learned this the hard way too. We do not have the right to live however we want. And we may, in a fit of immaturity, want to criticize God for how he goes about executing justice on earth. But we do not have the right to live however we want. And God explains this over and over. Pharaoh is an example from history of how not to respond to God. But Pharaoh did refuse this request to let God's people go. And so Moses and Aaron are kind of like, maybe if we re-articulate this, let let, let me say this again. And so in verse 3 of chapter 5, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. In other words, hey, you know, God told us what to do here and we're all in a lot of trouble. I mean, this is not a it's not okay. Like we need to obey what God has told us to do or we could all be in a lot of trouble here. Obedience is important. Verse four. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the summary here is Pharaoh is basically saying, okay, same quota, but I'm not providing the straw anymore. You're going to have to find that yourselves. So they had to scour the country for straw, and the demand for all of this was near impossible. So notice what's happening here. Moses and Aaron obeyed God, which created disaster. Like, they did exactly what they were supposed to do, and things got worse. Like, exactly the opposite of what it was that God said would happen. God said, go to Pharaoh. You know, I'm going to set my people free. I've seen your affliction and so on. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. And they go and do it, and their situation gets worse. So that's what's happening here at this point. Here's the effect. Verse 13, the taskmasters were urgent The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. A couple of key words there, urgent and beaten. And were asked, 
Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday? As in the past, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. If you're underlining stuff, that, uh, that's a good, good line there to underline. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, and they were. They were in trouble. So they went and they talked to Pharaoh about this to see if they could get leniency, and they did not. And on their way out of Pharaoh's court, where they were told again that they were lazy, verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, so listen to this. This is the words of these Jewish leaders to Pharaoh and Aaron. They said, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You have made us stink. Now, what about all that worship service at the end of chapter four? You remember that? I mean, that great worship service where we're all just, you know, lifting our hands up and we are praising God about how he's seen our affliction. And now all of a sudden they're going to these leaders and they're saying, you have made us stink. Your obedience to God has made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. And there's something predictable here with a young Christian. Life gets hard and lashes out at leadership at parents, at fill-in-the-blank authority figure. That's nice. Oh, there we go. The shotgun's coming out next. (laughs) Okay, so... Like a lot of new leaders, Moses doesn't know how to respond to all of this. He has obeyed. He did exactly what he was was supposed to do. He he goes to Pharaoh. He says what he's supposed to say. And uh, the result of all of this is that the problem actually gets worse. It was supposed to fix the problem, but it gets much worse. And now he's not this hero returning from afar, leading a great worship service, and everybody's dancing around and stuff. But now everybody's saying, hey, You made us stink. And uh, Moses, like a lot of young leaders, didn't know how to respond to that. And so verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, (laughs) why have you done the evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. I, you know, and I don't want to criticize Moses here because, you know, this is an 80-year-old man who just doesn't know God very well. He, he's old, and so you'd think, wow, he's mature, but he isn't really. He doesn't know God very well. He doesn't know God well enough to stay composed in this horrible situation. And it is a horrible situation. It is. People are being beaten. People are freaking out and pointing their fingers at Moses. One of my favorite professors in seminary was uh, Willem van Gemmeren. He is a really good older man. And he talked about faith as uh, standing really calmly in a stream and, allow, and, uh, and just standing there in the stream and allowing the water to just pass you by. He had really powerful uh, 
metaphors like that. And uh, I often think about that. That there's just something about just, just getting through it. You know, and Moses is going to experience all kinds of trouble in the next few chapters. One of the major lessons of God's people, one of the major lessons of Christianity, and one of the major lessons of leadership is the ability to trust God when things fall apart. And Moses hasn't learned this yet. He's going to kind of learn this. (laughs) The ability to trust God when the wheels come off. This is John Piper talking about sleep. Wrote an article on sleep, and here's what he said. Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, Psalm 121, but Israel will, for we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. Be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. Well, so this is a a lesson that Moses needs to learn, and I don't have a lot of criticism for him. I'm not sure that I have learned this. But he responds in a fairly predictable way. Things get bad. People blame him. And he says, Lord, what is going on? Why did you even send me here? I did what I was supposed to do. And he says, and you have not delivered your people at all. (laughs) I'm sure that this was horrible for Moses, but do you remember back in chapter 3 where God said this, was ha- this would happen? I mean, God said to him twice, chapter 3, verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And early in chapter 4, he says, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's burning bush. And this is going to be a reoccurring theme for Moses here. Not only facing evil and bad things happen, but also uh, getting blamed for stuff when stuff goes wrong. This happens to Moses all the time. It, It even happens with Miriam and Aaron. In Exodus chapter 14, they're out in the wilderness, so we're skipping ahead a little bit. And they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? (laughs) What have you done to us in bringing us out out of Egypt? 
is this not is is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses gets that all the way through. And so, you know, he's got to he's got to toughen up a little bit here. So how does God respond to this? How does God respond to it? He doesn't send him on a vacation. He doesn't say, okay, now things are hard here, so let's, let's just take a break. <laughs> nope. <laughs> he reminds Moses of his attributes and his promises, and he says, get up and do it again. That's tough. That's tough. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And this is this famous phrase that he uses over and over. And I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. And so here you have God promising. And, and God, so here you have God promising, but reminding people of his promises and reminding people of his attributes. I am Yahweh. And it is with his attributes and his promises that God wants to heal the people. And God particularly wants to heal Moses. So Moses has got a freaking out heart. He's completely freaking out. And God wants to heal it with theology. Basic reminder of who God is and what he promises to do. Which is a really good thing to keep in mind. If you want peace, if you want to sleep, if you uh, hit some kind of snag in life. Don't put all of your trust in Ambien or yoga or a vacation or whatever it may be. Depend on him. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. So a great reminder. And Moses gets back up on the horse and he goes in front of the people and he tells the people this and watch how they respond to this beautiful reminder of God's promises and attributes. Let's have another worship service, says Moses. In verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Really different from the end of chapter 4. And it's just so sad. It's not, again, something that we need to just sit here and criticize. Because I think all of us have been there. Have you ever had just such a broken spirit that you can't listen to a sermon? Or it just doesn't sink? Or you're reading scripture and it just... There's just a broken spirit? So they needed to learn more about God. And again, these are young believers. Not much of the Bible had been written yet. (laughs) and things had just kind of gotten rekindled. They'd had one really good worship service their whole lives. So these are young believers, and they lost hope really quickly. And that's really common for a young believer is a hard time comes, and there's an immediate sort of despair. What if we were wrong? Remember 
I remember at least summer camp in the seventh grade, I rededicated my life to Jesus. And I got home and life kind of went back to normal. And so eighth grade, I went back to summer camp and I re-rededicated my life to Jesus. Or you may know what that's like. You attend just one of those great worship services. You know, sometimes just everything comes together where it's just the singing is great and the fellowship is great and the message is great and just everything is great and then you go home. And you hit some kind of snag and it all just kind of... You lose it. Everything from the morning slips away. And this is common. It's immature, but it's common. It's immature, but it's common. And God wants to help us grow up. God wants to help us get strong like a soldier that's been wounded in battle, relearning how to walk and all the pain and all the embarrassment and the frustration putting one foot in front of the other. God wants to build us up. He wants to give us faith muscles. Oswald Chambers said, perseverance means more than endurance, more than simply holding on until the end. A saint's life is in the hands of God like a bow and arrow in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something the saint cannot see, but our Lord continues to stretch and strain. And every once in a while, the saint says, I can't take it anymore. Yet God pays no attention. He goes on stretching until his purpose is in sight. And then he lets the arrow fly and trust yourself to God's hands. Is there something in your life for which you need perseverance right now? Maintain your intimate relationship with Jesus Christ through the perseverance of faith. Proclaim as Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. You know, God warned Moses about Pharaoh and he's warning all of us too. There's all kinds of scriptures here. We have the benefit of quite a few more pages than Moses had. And in 2 Corinthians We're told, for this light and momentary affliction. What, Paul? Are you serious? You're calling my stuff light and momentary affliction? Yeah, he says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And we watch people obey God all the way through the Bible. People like Paul. And we watch the wheels come off for him after being obedient and obedient and obedient. You do what God says and the wheels come off. And how are they going to respond? And sometimes with despair, sometimes with faith. Paul says to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So as we go on with God, we learn these lessons and Moses is learning these lessons. He's learning to say with Paul, with Job and so many others, I am content with weaknesses. King David in Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So God reminds him of his promises and his attributes People are broken in spirit and can't listen. So first they're blaming him and now they're just not even listening to him at all. So Moses and Aaron, we don't even know what Aaron's doing here. They're pretty isolating. 
And God says, get up and do it again. Verse 10, so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. You can imagine them saying, didn't we just do that? We're going to do that again? You can imagine what the Jewish leaders were thinking at the time. Like, that is the last thing we need to be doing right now. Spurgeon says, to plod on under apparent failure is one of the most acceptable of all works of faith, and he who can do it year after year is assuredly well-pleasing unto God. So there's a whole cycle of things here. I know I'm blowing through a lot of Scripture We've gone, you know, verse by verse, and now all of a sudden, we blew through a bunch of chapters. But I thought it was interesting to see how all of these events fit together. There's this amazingly hope-filled worship service, and then there's just very simple obedience, and then kind of shock, and Pharaoh's rebellion, and serious persecution, and the leadership was blamed, and the leadership despairs, and God comes back with basic theology, The response of the people was broken spirit, not even listening, and God tells the leaders, get up, get up, come on, let's do this again. (laughs) Let's do it again. (laughs) There's a lot to get out of this, and I hope in your shepherd groups you find more, but I'm going to toss out two implications from this series of events, two implications that are meaningful to me. The first one is to learn to wait for God. Learn to wait for God. And the class that you have to take in order to learn that is a hard class. It's a hard class. Moses did not expect Pharaoh to say no. (laughs) He He just didn't expect it. He just, and I don't know. I mean, I can really relate to that. God warns us about what life is really like. And yet, for some reason, it's such a shock. This is the problem in the book of Job, too. All of his friends basically feel like if you live a certain way, God will bless you. And if God is not blessing you, then there's something wrong. But the Bible teaches us something really different. It teaches us the beauty of waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises. God promised Abraham a child. He is the model of faith in Scripture. And look how God treats Abraham. Abraham. God promised Abraham a child and 10 years go by. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, maybe we should fix this ourselves by having sex with Hagar. Whoa, there's a bad idea. And then they waited a few more years. And then Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Well, Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And then more time goes by. And then Sarah gave birth. Abraham was promised offspring as numerous as the sand, as numerous as the stars. And in old age, he had one kid. Romans 4, 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what 
God meant when he said, your reward shall be very great. You're thinking this kind of reward, but I'm saying thousands of years after you die, people are going to be talking about your faith. And we should not be surprised by God's timing. He is not lazy, but he is after something much more interesting than utopia. We would like utopia, but God is interested in something way more interesting. He is after, first of all, his glory. And second, he's after our worship. And he uses all kinds of scenarios in order to bring that about. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slow, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me just read that again, because I think it's really interesting. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, God's apparent slowness results in salvation. His desire is that people not die. People not go to hell. His desire is that people reach repentance like a true heart condition and attitude toward God. That's what he's after. And his slowness, in other words, our waiting, is the atmosphere that makes those things possible. He's after something much more interesting than salvation. I think the story of Jesus calming the storm, it be interesting, I'll, I'll talk to Mike about this later this week and see what he thinks, but I think it's one of the hardest passages in the Bible to interpret. I mean, on the surface, it seems pretty simple what's going on, but Jesus calming the storm, I, I find it hard to interpret. You have all of the disciples, they're together, Jesus falls asleep, and there's this huge storm that comes up on the Sea of Galilee. Well, maybe I should read it. That'll be a much more powerful rendition. Mark chapter 4. right hopefully okay mark chapter four on that day when evening had come he said to them let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd they took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling but he was in the storm asleep on a cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we are perishing And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, so obviously what's happening here is we're meant to understand that Jesus Christ is sovereign over nature. And this situation is followed up with the Gerasene demoniac where Jesus cast a legion of demons out of this guy who's a total disaster running around in the wilderness. And the demons speak back to Christ and he allows them all to be put into these pigs who rush into the sea. So these disciples are like, Boom, boom, boom. Several scenarios that are disturbing where they're watching Jesus express and display and teach about his sovereignty over the demonic realm, over nature. And the whole thing with the Sea of Galilee, there were ancient beliefs about demons that lived down there and so on. And there weren't, but the belief was that down there in the dark places, things are scary. And we see this over and over. That's followed by the healing, I think, of 
Jairus' daughter. So Jesus is sovereign over nature. Jesus is sovereign over, over our bodies and over sickness. And Jesus is sovereign over the demonic realm. And Jesus is sovereign, right? And so we're going along with Jesus. Here we are as disciples. We get pulled along with Jesus. So there's an obvious thing here that God is sovereign over anything scary. God is sovereign over fill in the blank. God is sovereign over the cosmos. But why does he challenge them there? That's the thing that, that I find difficult. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The best that I can do is just ask this question. Would it have been better to not be in the boat? Is that what? I mean, they're with Jesus. This is the disciple. This is the gig. This is what it is. And you might say, well, why didn't he do it different? Why didn't he stay awake? And why did he wait until the boat was like, but all of those things are kind of irrelevant. This is the gig. This is what it is. And so either we're in the boat or we're not in the boat. Learning to wait for God is one of the hardest lessons, but it's a very important lesson to learn. He's worthy of it. And one last thing to say, one last implication, is to consider the main conflict, like what's really going on here. Because this is a divine battle. This is Yahweh versus Pharaoh who thinks he's a god and isn't. So it's divine battle. Exodus 5.1 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Exodus chapter 5, verse 10, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. So they're having a thus says conflict. And Moses is kind of an observer here. Because God is in a process of proving his sovereignty over Pharaoh, the most important leader of the ancient world. And of course, we all think that life is all about me, right? I want a certain kind of life, relatively free from trouble, but there are more important things going on in the cosmos. 1 Samuel 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what God's after. That's what God's after. It might help us. I mean, wouldn't it? I was almost going to say, wouldn't it be nice if we could see the unseen realm? But I think actually that'd be too scary. So it's probably good that we don't. But it would help us to know that it exists. It would help us to be reminded that it exists in the midst of trouble, to consider the unseen realities at play. There are areas of immaturity in my heart that I can't see that God is working on. There are angels and demons fighting cosmic battles that I don't even understand why they're being fought and how they're being fought. And there are innumerable things that I can't see. Can I trust God with simple obedience to the Bible? He tells me to do this, so do it. Regardless of what the consequences, regardless of what the results are, just do it. Just simply obey God. Simply wait and endure during trouble. Why is this happening? How long is it? It's happened for so long. Just, just wait. Just let it go. Just endure. Keep believing and keep waiting that God will be faithful. Simple sleep without worry. Because God can handle all kinds of things spinning this world while we are asleep. Let me close with this illustration from the Atlantic Monthly. This is about the days of the great western cattle rancher, and I just loved this illustration. Uh, So I'm going to close with this. A little burrow sometimes would be harnessed to a wild steed. 
bucking and raging, convulsing like drunken sailors, the two would be turned loose like Laurel and Hardy to proceed out onto the desert range. (laughs) They could be seen disappearing over the horizon, the great steed dragging that little burrow along and throwing him about like a bag of cream puffs. They might be gone for days, but eventually they would come back. The little burrow would be seen first trotting back across the horizon, leading the submissive steed in tow. Somewhere out there on the rim of the world, that steed would become exhausted from trying to get rid of the burrow, and in that moment, the burrow would take mastery and become the leader. And that is the way it is with the kingdom and its heroes, isn't it? The battle is to the determined, not to the outraged. The battle is to the committed, not to those who are merely dramatic. So here we are in Exodus, and we're still kind of in the setup of the story. We're still kind of in this question-asking literary moment. Things aren't going how they hope yet. Will God be faithful to his promises? Rejection and failure are hard. Will the people wait for God? Will they trust him? Will they obey him? Will God set them free? Good lessons for us, I think. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are great and awesome. You are holy and powerful. You are sovereign. You are good. We love you and we trust you and we pray that those things would increase. Pray that you would put us in any class we need to be in. Put us in any situation that we need to be in. So long as you are glorified and so long as our hearts become more worshipful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.